Is this thing on? Sorry, I just want to make sure you guys can hear me over all of that noise that's going on out there in the world right now. Specifically, after this hectic, crazy, wild election season. So how about a little distraction? My guest today is Denise Soler-Cox. She's a filmmaker, top 100 podcaster, TEDx speaker, twice actually, and coach. She created and produced a film called Being Enye. You might have heard about it. It's a documentary about the stories of American-born Latinos who don't feel Latino enough or American enough. Oh, does that sound familiar? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, obviously I had to watch the film. And after watching it, I had to talk to Denise about what inspired her to create this film. During our chat, Denise and I talked about honoring our diferente, how we both felt like we had to justify ourselves for the longest time, which I know you can totally relate to, and also this whole idea about belonging, and not just in the cultural USA side of things, but in the global sense, because our world and our belonging goes way beyond these borders. And by the way, if you haven't seen Being Enye, you can watch it for free online. Just uh, wait till the end of the episode and she will tell you where you need to go. Uh, you see what I did there? Yeah. All right, let's get started. This episode is presented by Social Mosaic Communications, a branding boutique founded on the idea of embracing your diferente. Go to socialmosaic.us to start creating with purpose. You're listening to Diferente. Estás escuchando Diferente, the bilingual podcast where we celebrate and explore the complexities of living life between two or more cultures. I'm your host, Maribel Quesada-Smith, a producer and creative consultant from Mexico City, living in the U.S., who loves hip-hop and cumbia. I created Diferente to learn, laugh, and grow alongside you with stories and interviews that relate to the bicultural experience. Let's get started. Denise, welcome to the show. Welcome to Diferente. I'm so happy to finally have you on the show after like two years of talking about it. <laughs> Thank you. I am so honored. I remember when your podcast came out and I was so excited to see you on the scene. And I just have loved seeing your evolution, your growing family. I'm just so honored to have been asked to be on your show. Ah, Thank you. I'm honored to have you. <laughs> um, so earlier, we were just talking briefly about your name. I want to dive right into that because it is like the premise of basically being a bicultural individual in the United States, the whole last name thing. So you have one last name and a middle name, right? So tell us a little bit about why you did that. Yeah. So I, growing up, my name was Denise Soler without a middle name. No one in my family has a middle name. Very odd to be Latina for that to be the case. Then I met and married a gringo with the last name C-O-X and we got married and it was like a year before I would officially take his name. And I felt strongly that I wanted to take it, but also was super conflicted about losing my identity as a Latina um, without the Soler. So I decided to change my legal name and make my maiden name my legal middle name because I wanted to honor my Latinidad. And my grand and my family, right? I wanted to honor that. Um, and then I also wanted to be able to have an opportunity to say my name correctly because my entire life, um, up until the time I was in my early 20s, 
I'd mispronounced my name and quote unquote Americanized it or made mm-hmm. it easy for people to pronounce. And I bought into it. I didn't think how about would you it. say it? Solar. Oh, so okay. boring. I'm like, how so else boring. would you say it? <laughs> what do you mean you changed it? Like for me, it's only one way. So later. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Exactly. Right. And it's such a great topic for Diferente because I think a lot of Latinos and a lot of people who are bicultural, they, they have this come up, you know, mm-hmm. whether they get married or not, if you have two last names in the United States, you're basically forced to let go of one of them. Well, are you? I was actually wondering that because I was actually thinking, even though both my daughters have middle names, I was thinking about changing their middle names too and adding the Soler. And even my mother's last name, Vidal, like I got, I had, I had this crazy <laughs> so wild have hair. Five names. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wait, I think I can do it. Like who says I can? And like, if I don't do this, these things will persist and they have to live on, you know? And so I, the, I have spent time thinking about it, but zero time researching it. Can you not, you can, you can only have one middle name or I wonder. I have, I have no idea. I don't think there are any official rules, but okay. I will say that in your driver's license, if you start to add too many names, they'll start cutting them off. Oh, <laughs> like, okay. They'll only put like half of the name because that happened to my mom. She has a long name. Oh so my goodness. I, yeah. I don't know how it works specifically, but that leads me to my, ne- my next question, which is how I originally wanted to kick off the episode, but hey, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. So I want to give a brief intro into your documentary, your short film, uh, Enye. When did you start feeling diferente? Um, So I feel like my earliest memory, and I've definitely given this a lot of thought, is being a young girl, I'm going to say probably around five or six, and holding my mother's hand in church. Uh, We used to go to church on in Spanish Harlem, and uh, one of my mother's friends bending down and asking me a question that I'd, I'd been asked, or was familiar, and um, which was, ¿Puedes hablar español conmigo, Denise? ¿Puedes hablar? Habla español conmigo. Because they wanted to know how good my Spanish was, right? So and they I wanted remember, to size you up. <laughs> yes. And like, I'm five, you know, and I'm sitting there holding my mother's hand. And I, I have this memory of looking up and, or just saying like, um, or what is that? And I would say un poquito, right? And I got into this un poquito habit and it became like my thing. And I remember feeling shame for the first time in my life. Like that's my earliest memory, Ooh, wow. memory of shame. I was probably way more fluent than I was letting on, but I was so nervous to make a mistake um, that I said un poquito, kind of took the back door, right? And then the person stood up and told my mother like, oh my gosh, you're not teaching her Spanish. Why are you teaching her Spanish? Oh, chastise your mom, yeah. My mother being accused of it and yeah, being chastised for it. And then um, I don't know why she's not learning. We're speaking in, you know, (laughs) that stuff. And then she can learn it on her own. She's an adult, but it kind of, it evolved into blaming her, unfortunately, right? Um, And then um, blaming me. Mm. But the thing is, is that um, that shame, like it was born there. And Mm. I'll never forget how that felt, you know? It's a terrible feeling to have that, this connection with your with your roots and, and, and actually it being pointed out to you as a young child. I mean, you said you were five mm-hmm. in that moment. Did you feel like you had to start letting go of your roots because you couldn't really speak Spanish fully? Did that make you feel like maybe you start, you had to start connecting more with the American side of you? And let well, go? 
Latinx side. And I, yeah. I say American. It's that's an ignorant thing for me to say because obviously you're American, but mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, like the totally American culture side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my house felt like Puerto Rico. Like it didn't, you know, it wasn't as warm as Puerto Rico, and the winds weren't blowing through the windows like Puerto Rico. <laughs> but it smelled like Puerto Rico. It sounded like Puerto Rico. It uh, looked like Puerto Rico. Puerto Rican artwork on the walls. You know, for all intents and purposes, it was that to me. And so I so strongly identified with that. That yes it was way harder to be criticized from within the community. And it definitely planted the seeds of doubt of my identity um, early on. And I do like to point that out because oftentimes people have this break in belonging when it comes to the outer world, outside that American world you were just talking about or the non-Latino world, right? And they think that's the source. And it absolutely is a contributor. (laughs) Um, Oftentimes though, it's with, it starts, where I just yes it's inside the culture yes and how I know it is because I've met hundreds of people that share that same story their own version of that same story you know yeah I I have talked to a lot of people too like yourself who are either first generation or maybe second third generation Americans and they say that it's really the shame comes within the culture like oh my abuelita she's always yelling at me because I'm not practicing my Spanish or I don't have the right pronunciation and people start to feel ashamed and now they don't even care or they stop wanting to try because of that. But I do believe that thanks to your film and other people out there who are making it more of, a, I guess, less stigmatized for people to want to learn their language again or to, to speak it, even if they're not perfectly uh, speaking it. There, I think I feel like <laughs> exactly like I'm doing now. I'm not perfectly speaking English. <laughs> But, you know, I'm still speaking. Exactly. It. So yes, I feel like yes. it is becoming less stigmatized to not necessarily be able to pronounce words perfectly, but be able to continue to do it anyway. Right. I'm going to share that how the, the shame kind of got into me and how it how easily it can get passed on. My daughter was in, um, I think, probably third grade and she had an assignment and she had to do something where she shared Spanish. It was like some project that it was like, you know, glue and pictures and a big board. And um, I was away on a trip screening the film somewhere, right? And my husband uh, picked her up and from school and um, she she showed him her homework assignment or whatever. And it was like this big thing that they made at school. And she asked him not to show me. And the whole thing was in Spanish. She asked him not to show me. And he said, why don't you want mommy to see this? And she said, because she'll criticize me if something's wrong. And I, when my husband told me that, I couldn't believe that here I am talking about all the stuff, trying to strike up these conversations and stop the madness, and only to find out that I had perpetuated the madness with my own daughter. And it was a wake-up call for me because it, and it, it just shows like how the shame can just come right through you and you just hand it down totally unconsciously. So, yeah, even though you thought you were doing a perfect job at not doing that. <laughs> That's right. crazy. Like, I thought I was all woke about it. Yeah. And really I was I was perpetuating it. And so I had to take my daughter aside and apologize to her. And I literally told her, I will never ever criticize you ever again. And I want you to feel totally comfortable. Um, and my approach has been terrible. 
and I am going to change it 100%. And she was like, really? I don't know that you can do that, mommy. Like, you know, she's like, I don't know, a little older than I was when I was at church with my own mother, right? But I have to say, I'm proud of myself. I've never criticized her ever again. I've never once said anything negative. If anything, I have only been that encouraging voice. But it's weird to hear my my mother's voice, my grandmother's voice, my dad's voices, and that critical voice that just comes through uh, seemingly out of my control, which is really crazy. That's actually something that I was thinking about as I was watching the film. So I started thinking about it as a mother, just like you are. I'm like, okay, so what can we do as parents to protect our kids from the dysfunctional side of being an Enya or living a bicultural experience, as I call it, without though, without sheltering them from real life? Because I, I do feel like Yes, we should protect them from that side of things in a way, you know, be nicer about it, be less critical about it. But at the same time, I don't want to shelter my son and make him think that the world is not going to treat him differently. Right. That's the question of the hour. I mean, many books should be written about this. I feel like that is a, that's an amazing question to ask and just like lots of people kind of um, contributing and then making a document, a PDF, a shareable PDF. <laughs> We definitely, I would love to see something like that. Um, as far as though, like the, the the passing down of shame, I feel like we have to look at ourselves and really do that work, right? Uh, and that's the internal work inside the housework, let's say. And then outside the house is, you know, for me, I, I let my, my husband and I allow our children to watch like different television shows. And I'm a big pause button person. So I will pause and I will say, just so you guys know, this was mommy's experience, or this is, uh, you know, this person's experience that we're related to. So to kind of contextualize things, they were, they're white passing. They have, they will experience white privilege their entire lives. And I feel responsibility to raise two compassionate women of color in quotes almost, right? And that they are going to have a, a level of sensitivity that has to come with their privilege. I'm so glad you bring up that white privilege and white passing um, situation because as I, again, watching Enya, you mentioned that when you were growing up and you had moved to Westchester, New York, yes. Yes. you got called, I, I like to say the S word, or, you know, yes. you, you got called a spig. Yes. And you said specifically the girls walked by you and they said, good, mo- good morning, Spick. Uh-huh. Um, the interesting part about that experience that you had is that even though you in your family were considered to be a little bit more white passing, you uh-huh. were still recognized as non-white and, po- uh-huh. and it was pointed out to you. But uh-huh. the second part that I thought was interesting was that your parents reacted way differently for you than mine did. When I got oh, called really? a spick. Yeah. So you mentioned that your dad was incredibly supportive and was like, if, he, if these girls call the house again, I will end, you know, whatever's yes. going on and I'm going to put a <laughs> stop to it. I mean, he was like all the way in your corner. Mm-hmm. My parents, when I got called a spick, actually specifically got written on the side of my car. Oh my uh, gosh. Are you serious? Right? Yes. My, pa- my parents' reaction was, what did you do? Oh. <gasps> And I I talked about that in my last episode. Wow! (laughs) And I know I'm laughing because I'm kind of getting over it now, but I've had to, I've had to come to terms to that with my mom and had a conversation with her about her own white privilege, because in that moment she reacted with her personal experience in the world being as seen as white passing. My Mm -hmm. mom is very fair skinned. So her experience in the United States has been very different to mine. 
Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't always get recognized as being a woman of color. And so mm-hmm. for her to say, what did you do? Obviously, oh it was incredibly God. hurtful. Yeah. But it's because she didn't understand that she had a point of view that was privileged and not having to deal with the things that I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so when you tell your daughters like, hey, you are privileged and you're not going to have to deal with some of the stuff that other women of color who are also maybe half Puerto Rican have to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful because then they understand that they need to have a different point of view. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I, oh, it's so hard to hear. I could actually identify with what your mom did, which is because I've definitely been in situations like that too, where I was, I was made to feel responsible for something that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that the, my, the reaction, the anticipated reaction of my mom would have been the drama. <gasps> and like my mom had this thing where she's like, don't, uh, you need to spare me of these things, you know, like the total drama queen, like, uh, don't tell me these terrible things. I need to be spared. My life is already so <laughs> difficult. That type. So I was like, there's no way, you know, like, yeah, you, you felt like you had to, you couldn't share the burden. I remember watching that too. No. And God, that made mm-hmm. me so sad because I totally relate to that. Even though we had a little bit of a different experience, mm-hmm. I completely relate to the fact that you felt like you had to carry that burden on your own. I mean, even your friends were saying like, why didn't you tell us that this was yes. going on? And yes. sometimes when you're a kid, you don't think about it that way. No. Like things happen to you when you're a kid and you kind of just swallow them sometimes and push them aside because the way that an adult reacts to them can really make you decide whether or not you think you should share it or not. And right. I think that for me, my mom reacting in that way was, a, was almost like telling me, like I should be ashamed and maybe I should look at how I'm doing things and why I would bring that upon me. And that's how I lived for a long time, uh-huh. carrying that weight of like, yeah. you know, maybe I should assimilate more. Maybe I should oh stop gosh. being so diferente. <laughs> oh my gosh. But she didn't mean it that way. She no. really didn't. We had a conversation right. about it. She, but those are the things that as parents, we can, we do sometimes to our kids, yep. not even realizing it. Exactly. And so, so good that you gave her that grace you know, and definitely being a parent and having these moments like the one that I had with my daughter with the poster and stuff like that. It's like, oh my God. Like, And the best we can do is apologize and try to do better. You know, I think also too, with like the, the immigrant community coming in now and the struggle of the parents across the border and the, um, just how difficult life is for some of our people in our community. I feel like the kids don't say anything because their life is so hard and they don't want to contribute to it being harder. Yeah, too, that's true. You know, so they don't, it's like they make these judgment calls at six, seven, eight, whatever. And, um, and so if we don't talk about them, then, and that's, you know, then, then the kid never realizes that the parent can handle it. Right. Because that's the thing. We're grownups. We can handle these things. And so that's why I love that the film is so popular. Um, it's so popular with all ages, uh, which is so surprising to me. But it's very popular in middle school age, which I think is the age that a kid really needs to hear this. You know? Absolutely. I wish I would have had something like that in that, and in that age, because that's when I came to the United States. I was 12. And actually, I was going to ask you, that was my next question. So what propelled you to to do the film? Thank you. 
Nowadays, it seems like everyone with a camera and a microphone is a quote, content creator. Don't get me wrong, I love that the internet has allowed so many people to test their creativity, but when it comes to your brand making an impact, wouldn't you rather partner with a seasoned media expert? Because your brand is more than a business, it's a story. So let me help you tell that story. I'm a producer and creative consultant who understands that your online presence should be working for your brand, not against your bottom line. If you're ready to create online video and audio content in English or in Espanol that builds trust and turns your audience into loyal customers, go to maribelqs.com forward slash ready and let me know. Yeah, so honestly, like those moments, like the moment at church with my mom and going to Puerto Rico. I mean, we went to Puerto Rico so many times as a kid, it was way more than once a year. It was like three, four, five times a year for like weddings, baptisms, all the, you know, holidays, birthdays, all the things. And so I was always over there. I was always, you know, going back and forth, back and forth and experiencing myself there as a gringa, um, like a, a, <laughs> a, a funny very much so speaking and like my cousins making fun of me. And now as an adult, I'm just like, oh, they were just teasing probably in much the same way that I would tease somebody. Right. But all those things, it's like the collective, um, all of those things kind of adding up, like they're just saying death by a thousand paper cuts, like between that and, um, you know, and then people like literally having the conversation with family members, like you're not Puerto Rican, you were born in New York, you should be proud. But I'm just like, but wait a second, I'm supposed to be proud of my culture. And like having that dialogue with young kids, kids like me was a kid, like kids, you know, like my cousin's age, you know, like we're, we're the same age, we're having this argument, then the older siblings, and then going back to New York and having to justify my identity there too with the, I call it the forbidden question. What are you? Right? Like no one ever I wants hate to that ask question. that question. <laughs> yeah. Like don't ever ask us that question. But the funny thing is, is that had it not been for that question, we would not be having this conversation because there would be no movie because had I not <laughs> true. literally asked myself a million times this question. Who am I? Like, really, what does make me Latina? What makes a person a person? What makes me um, like anything, right? Um, Puerto Rican or American? Like, I literally spent way too much time pondering the answer to this question, right? <laughs> and because I spent so much time on it, that's why we have a movie. And because I would talk to other people about it and want to understand it so deeply. And so I it's, I spent a lifetime hating the question. And now that I don't hate it, now that it to me is a doorway for an incredibly interesting conversation, mm. not a single person asked me what I am. Because <laughs> <laughs> they know, like, no, we know who she is. No, you know what? That's so funny because I hate that question. The question question of what are you? Mm -hmm. Oh, it triggers. Just, it's very it does trigger, trigger me. <laughs> yeah. And it's what, it's really what it triggers you to like, it's the head trip that we go into. And it makes me feel like I have to justify myself. Right. And, and we feel like we do until we realize we don't. And that we can say whatever we want back and that that's okay. And that we don't have to give our energy to the person, the stranger, the person we'll never see again, maybe. Um, 
our, our, the day, we don't have to give them any energy around it. We can just tell them and then move on. Right. But because it has this thing, it reminds us up of the pain. Um, it's just so hard to trudge through the pain. And honestly, I wouldn't have trudged through it if I didn't, if I didn't make the movie, because I definitely wasn't over it by the time we started the movie. I got over it while we made it because after a while being in this conversation, as you know, you kind of get to some points where you're like, hang on a second. Like, yeah, I saw, I saw you go through your process in the film, which I thought was very valuable and so important to share. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you shared that vulnerability with the audience because we see you transcending through your pain. Thank and you. I love that experience. When I actually, when I started the film, I thought it was going to be something different. I no really way. expected, yeah, I expected it to be a little bit more quote, detached. Uh (laughs) What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I thought it was going to be more documentary, like, like detached point of view. Oh, like a journalist? The facts. Yeah, exactly. More journalistic. And, and when I saw that it was more of a POV uh, documentary from your perspective, it was amazing. It honestly, I, I appreciated that. I thought, man, this is awesome because then we can see what she's going through. It's actually, it's an actual journey. Yeah. So I love that. That's my favorite type of storytelling is like the, the, the point of view storytelling. I think it's more powerful because it shares the experience with the audience and it helps people be in your shoes. Right. Right. It's like, how else are we going to change anything unless I'm willing to risk showing you my truest self. Right. And especially if we're at odds. Right. And I know you and I aren't, chances are, but there's so many people that disagree with um, me and you and us. And if we're not willing to lean into the truth and the, the uh, uh, and our authentic story, then I don't know that we have a chance. I mean, that's how we <laughs> develop empathy. It's like, oh, wait, so that's just like, people get to start making connections um, and realizing that age old cliche, we have more uh, in common then we have different. Uh, and so I, you know, the idea of that is what everybody buys into it. But when we're in times like the time that we're in now, it's very hard to digest unless we're willing to lean into that real story. And I will say it was my, um, it was my partner's idea, my creative partner's idea, who's a very successful documentarian to make the film about me. When I pitched it to him, I, I, I wanted it to be more journalistic. I wanted it to be more objective. And it was really his idea to make it about my life. And I was like, absolutely not. There's no <laughs> way in hell I'm going to do this. No. And the conversation is over. Like that graveyard scene, I was so over it that day and our audio actually stopped working in the parking lot and I was like this is a sign let's just leave I don't want to do this I don't want to shoot this scene right such a critical scene but there were things in the first film that I did not share which is why we're now making another film um, to address the things that I left out because I realized that that film sparked conversations very specifically about sexual assault and domestic violence um, and the secrets that we keep, especially in our community, um, and like just a tremendous amount of feedback about secrets came up. You know what? That's so interesting because you did kind of leave me hanging at the end. I kind of wanted more. Yeah, absolutely. At the end, I was like, okay, what happens Uh next? (laughs) (laughs) There's so much to explore about being Enya um, and just you know, being in that, in that life and that experience. So what is the main lesson that you hope people will take away from the film? 
Yeah, the main lesson from the first film is definitely you are not alone. Like, sorry, no, you are not alone. <laughs> and you actually have never been alone. And that is a huge, that's a big deal for people, you know, because that's what I realized the night that I had the film. I literally lived my life believing no one gets me. <laughs> no one's had this experience. I'm the only one, right? And then I'm like, wait a second, you guys feel like this too? Holy crap. And it's like, I felt the sense of belonging that I'd never experienced in my life. And I never realized how important it is to feel like you belong. The crazy thing is that as an immigrant, so I'm, as I explained, I'm an immigrant, yes. right? Yes. So for me, I kind of grew up believing that I didn't need that in my life, that I could walk into any room with any culture and feel okay and safe and not feel weird about it. I used to pride myself in saying that. When I was when I was younger, I would be like, I can walk into any room and I'm fine. Like, I'm not uncomfortable. I don't know what you're talking about, person of color who feels like weird in a room full of white people. Like, um, I always, you know, I was proud to say that. Yes. I still, I will say, like, I still, for the most part, feel, feel comfortable in the majority of rooms. However... I now understand, having moved to Phoenix, Arizona, I finally understand what it's like to actually feel like you belong and oh. that you don't have to explain yourself. Yeah. Because I lived my life having to explain who I was and defend who I was. And now I'm, in, I'm surrounded by people who are just like me. Uh -huh. And I'm like, holy shit, there are so many people like me out here, <laughs> like where they live this cultural divide and it's okay. Like they speak Spanglish and it's no one criticizes uh -huh. each other. And it, like they get me. You know, they automatically yeah. know how to say my name. Like even little things like that make a difference in your, in the way that you see yourself and how you perceive your own journey. Like I, I feel like I'm becoming a better version of myself because I'm being accepted finally. Yes. It's almost like it's a, it's the starting point for, and like that, it's not, a, it's not the big things. It's all about the little things. It's all about how your name is pronounced. It's all about how I understand you before you even say a word. Like you, you liked my movie. We like I start, see you. <laughs> yeah, like we get to start. Uh, but you know, there's like one. We're already at a hundred, right? And so it, being able to live somewhere where you get to be at a hundred, and it's like, oh, start from there. Start from I belong here already. Um, of course it gives you freedom. Of course it makes you feel relaxed and like you can be yourself and like you can start creating something because there isn't all this other, like what you said, defending, trying to understand, trying to feel understood, questioning, all of that is exhausting. Like yeah. Selena, yes, you know, like that scene in Selena, it's real. And when we don't have to expend that energy and we can just literally start from that place of belonging, it's the greatest gift in the world belonging really is what we need to be talking about and addressing. And that's why I love your podcast, because this does expand outside of the community. The community informed the insight and the community informed a lot of the um, kind of ideas that I have now. But this, this conversation really is about global belonging and addressing um, the in-between that life presents itself with, especially in a world with global migration, with political unrest and people leaving countries because they don't feel safe, including the United States, right? And with so many little Enyas being born all over the world, this is a necessary conversation, the origin of which for me was making the film. But aspirationally, um, my greatest hope is that is that we begin to prioritize idea belonging and the ideas and conversations that 
that come out of it. And I feel like your podcast is very much a part of that. Oh, well, then, yeah. thank you so much. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, you know what? Great segue. So <laughs> this is going to be one of my last questions. So the idea of holding on to your culture, I, I got that fully from the film. But then I started thinking, can we can we do that? Or do we need to just be open about it, just transcending and becoming something different? Like, do we just, do we need to give it up and just be like, all right, it's okay that our culture transcends and becomes something new yeah. here in this country with the new generations? Mm -hmm. Or can we hold on to our culture? Yeah, I feel like someone has to join. We need to like, we need to like have we a whole a third conversation. Person. <laughs> yeah. But like, no, this is a, like when Louis said that, like in that last scene and he was like, it needs to change and evolve and all that stuff, you know, it got me thinking like at first I resisted. I'm like, no, it needs to stay pure, like at yes. any cost. Right. That's what I think and sometimes then, too. <laughs> yeah. But then it's like, wait a second, language evolves. Right. You know, like, haven't you seen that, that, that video where someone's speaking Arabic and then they're speaking Spanish and someone says an Arabic word and then a Spanish word. And like, they're, they sound exactly the same and they mean the same thing. Oh I was like, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah. And then it's like, I went, I remember going to this, um, this performance when I lived in Miami and it, it showed how Arabic dance informed flamenco in three parts. And again, I was like, yeah like we have always been evolving language evolves culture evolves and it, oh, it becomes and transmutes into the next thing right and I also know that if I don't allow um, words like Latinx to appear in our vernacular if I resist that in many ways, I'm resisting the evolution of our culture and what it could become, right? And I'm very proud of what our culture looks like today. I love being Latina and I love the richness of all of it. And so many parts of this, the way that our culture is now, someone resisted at some point, right? Yeah, I think it's a definitely a conversation that we would have to have with like two other people because yes. it's so interesting. But I think I feel like it's my job to make sure that I pass this tradition on and I pass the yeah. food on as it's meant to be passed on, you know, like yes. the, the recipes of my abuelas. But in, in a way, it's okay if people want to evolve a little bit. You know, I used to be, I, I would get mad when people would put like, different things in their guacamole like pomegranate uh, seeds but then I oh tasted it and I was like duh that's amazing and now oh, it is? the whole Mexican Asian fusion oh my god no it's it's so good like honestly uh -huh. I'm not mad at it anymore because I'm starting to understand that it's okay to have an evolution of flavors yeah. an evolution of language but I think that it goes back to the feeling of guilt feeling like you're responsible for your whole culture <laughs> like passing right. on the culture yeah. And then I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. There's, there has to be like a middle ground though. You know, like I, that is definitely the case that a lot of people I've met on my journey after the film came out are very pained because they feel like they're not passing it down right or at all or whatever. And the thing is, as long as we're active participants in the way that is comfortable for us, right? And so for me, it's definitely food. My daughter knows how to make sofrito, like she's known how to make it for a long time. Um, pasteles, like the, you know, even coquito, you know, certain things that they're going to know. And I, I do want them to pat to experience them in their most pure form. But if my daughter wants to eat, you know, uh, Maduro with um, ketchup, <laughs> it would never happen. But if she did, and then that became a thing, then I don't, you know, it just, I, I think it's uh, sadness around it, you know, and a lot of that uh, shame 
like I didn't do it right. I'm not enough and I'm, I'm not doing this right and I'm not sharing it enough. And that can go. There's the door. Please leave. Right. And just like, where can we celebrate? What, like, I remember when I was feeling shame about language because my joke is I'm 85% fluent in Spanish and that's with two glasses of Pinot Grigio. I always say it and that's the <laughs> joke and whatever. And so, but when my girls were young and my husband's like, you need to start speaking to them in Spanish. I'm like, babe, my Spanish sucks. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and he's like, you always say you're 85% fluent. Why don't you just teach them the 85% you know? And that stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, wait a second. So, okay. Sometimes I feel like I've been addicted to my own shame. And I had to let the shame go because I want my da- my daughters to be fluent in Spanish. And so I taught them the 85% that I knew, you know? Um, and that's another thing in our, in our culture uh, that I think that we all, it would serve us all to look at is where are we addicted to that shame and where can we just let it go mm. for something better, something that doesn't make us feel bad, right? Because the shame is the thing that's holding you back in the first place. So, mm-hmm. so just bye. Like you said, there's the door. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been so awesome. It's been great yes. having you on the show. We'll be talking more in the future. I would love that. I would we'll, love that. We'll have to do a follow-up episode, like we said, later on on another topic. Yes. What's, next, what's next for you and uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so people can find me and the film at projectenya.com, project, E-N-Y-E.com. Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever your favorite social media, I'm there too, as Project Enya. And so please follow me there. And, um, and what's next is really, we are focusing a lot of our attention on our podcast, the Selfish Latina podcast, and also on our next film, um, which we hope to be in much bigger production with in 2021. And I'm also writing a book about belonging as well. Hey, I want to know, did you ever get your wedding rings back? No, I did not. And that's on purpose. I actually, um, uh, my joke is my, my marriage has never been better since we sold the rings. And it's partially true and really probably all the way true is I definitely put way too much importance on things. And I definitely like nice things. Absolutely, most definitely. Um, and it became less and less of a priority for me to have it because um, that selling of the rings was so meaningful between my husband and I and this vow that we took to never ever be in that situation again. It, it solidified a marriage that I'm sure would have lasted forever, right? Into many lifetimes. Making that decision with him to do that that day, it solidified our relationship in ways that I could never... Um, anticipate and it it made it made it like him and I against the world no matter what and that he would stand by me no matter what even sell our wedding rings to make sure this movie got made that's the stuff of a great marriage and he's seen pictures already of the new ring I want (laughs) but it's like not a priority do you know what I mean yeah no I love that and to be honest with you it definitely made me cry when I saw that in the film I don't want to give it all away people need to go watch it yeah yeah. I just I just had to ask because that's such a poignant moment and it definitely shows your passion behind what you're doing so I think people are very grateful to the fact that you gave up something you loved for for the culture, for the world, to see your creativity. And that's something that is very valuable. So thank you so much for sharing oh, that with us. And thank yes. you for being on Diferente. Thank you so much. This has been so great. I so appreciate this conversation. 
Thanks for listening to Diferente. If you enjoyed this one, let me know on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Maribel underscore QS. And if you haven't already, don't forget, show me some love on the reviews. Click on those five stars and tell me why you like listening to Diferente. And until next time, remember to be curious and courageous on that growth journey. Thank you.